welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, where we will explore traditional Quaker beliefs and the variety of Quaker beliefs found today. Welcome back to Quaker Faith and Podcast with Mackenzie and Micah. And this time we are looking at section 7F, which is on simplicity and plainness, which um, if you've seen a picture of me yet, you know that this means I'm going to talk a lot this time. Um, Just uh, for context, for people who haven't seen a picture of Mackenzie, Mackenzie uh, dresses in sort of a plain modern is plain how, modern. is how, is how, uh, Isabel Penrith, who is QuakerJane.com would characterize it. I think. Mm-hmm. But basically, uh, just uh, sitting across from her, she's wearing, um, sort of a nondescript black skirt. Uh, it has pockets with pockets. Yes. And you know, I've been informed that you're, you're not, you're not really a person to be trusted. If you don't remark that your that your dress has pockets and you compliment <laughs> on your dress. <laughs> Um, she's wearing a button-down uh, purple shirt with a collar, and she's wearing a, uh, I don't know what that is, is that uh, linen? Yeah, linen. A linen head covering, and she's wearing some kind of boots, right? Black. Black boots. Um, so uh, she's dressed in such a way that uh, you might notice that she's wearing some sort of religious scarf, but it might also you might also miss it if you weren't paying attention. And if you were a person, another person wearing plain garb, like a you know a conservative Mennonite or an Amish person, something you might be like, "What the heck are you?" Yes, and I've had this happen a couple of times. Um, actually, just this past Sunday, I was um, out in Cumberland, Maryland. I was I was driving home from visiting conservative friends in Ohio, and I stopped in Cumberland to take some photos at the old railroad, railroad station. And there were a couple of guys there who commented on my clothes and asked. Um, whether I was dressed up or something. I said, no, I dress like this every day. And they said, so you're a Christian. They, they, or, well, actually, they said, our wives do too. So you're a Christian then. And so we got to talking about Mennonites versus Quakers. Um, I explained that we come from England, not from continental Europe. So no, we're not technically Anabaptists. Also, that whole we don't do water baptism, all that much thing. Um, and another time I was walking out of the metro after work and... Uh, ahead of me, I saw a whole lot of feet with long skirts and black aprons. And I looked up, and there was a group of... I'm going to get the name wrong. They were, they were brethren. I, old, old, old Order River old, Brethren? They were the There's ones, so many types of brethren. Yes, there are so many. And yes, there were... I think it might have been Old Order River Brethren. It might have been German River Brethren. I'm not sure. Bill Rushby could tell me because... They're the ones that are down near Richmond. <laughs> but I, it was winter and I had my, I have a big wool bonnet that I wear in the winter. It keeps my ears so warm. It's great. Um, I took it off so they could see my white head covering. And um, one of the women stopped and she complimented the head covering and said, so which kind are you? Because <laughs> we don't have an established way of how we, <laughs> how we handle this. Um, so, you know, told her I was a Quaker. And she said, oh, we're brethren. And apparently she'd been to Earlham before, which... Earl School of Religion is sort of a shared seminary with the Brethrens. Oh, these were actually uh, Church of the Brethren. Oh. No, the, these were these were old 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 whatever. They they were uh-huh. they were the the old order or old German or whichever it is. But they she had visited Earlham before. Gotcha. And she yeah you know, she said the specific name of what they are, and then said that's related to the Church of the Brethren. Okay. As like an explanation, but then she said that. She was. She had been to a Quaker meeting because of the connection between Quakers and Brethren at Earlham. Interesting. Okay. Anyway. So, so this uh, Mackenzie's dress is an expression of plainness, 
which is what we're going to be talking about in today's podcast. Right. So, so the book starts out with just an introduction of um, the... So, so it points out that at one point, you could very easily tell somebody was Quaker based on um, the way they dressed, the way they spoke. If somebody dressed a particular way and um, said, how is thee today? You knew they were Quakers. Nobody else was calling you thee. Um, and so it was a very uh, public group witness. It was uh, sort of, I mean, it was practically like having Quaker written across your chest on a t-shirt that that's who you're interacting with. Maybe that's what we should do nowadays. Well, there is Quaker gear. Yeah. <laughs> um, or there's t-shirts, that, let's see, there's the t-shirts that say Quakers are way cooler than you think. There's ones that say Quaker gear and have like a picture of William Penn on them. And there's, um, well, John Watts has his t-shirts, right? <laughs> and yeah, there's, there's some Quaker shirts out there. I know, um, and Emily Province made rubber bracelets, silicone bracelets that say Quaker on them. So that when you're like reaching across to like hand the cashier your money, they see it says Quaker on your arm. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess we can sort of start with there's there is a clear outreach and evangelism thing that happens when you have that visibility. Yeah. Well, I mean, tradition, like traditionally, and by traditionally, I mean sort of in the in the Great Quaker Middle Period of like class, classical Quakerism or Quietist Quakerism, uh, there was sort of a dual function, or there are many functions actually, but. There was sort of an outreach, outreach, but the primary thing was a protection and basically saying, like, these are our people, uh, this is our in-group, uh, just be aware of who they are, and, and basically sort of holding people in the community accountable. Because, I mean, I mean, think of the Amish today, right? What would you do, or what would you think? What might you say to people you know if you were, if you were going along and you saw, like, say, some Amish guys... Uh, drink, Shooting craps, drink, drinking, drinking whiskey, and, and, and riding the buggy on the wrong side of the road. Uh, you might you might mention that to some people, and it might you know harm the reputation of the Amish community. Well, a similar thing with, with with Quakers in the sort of the classical the classical period where they, where they were all dressing plain um, and speaking in a distinctive way. If you saw Quakers doing something out of line with their testimony, that sort of caused a public scandal. Um, fast forward to today. I may, I, may, I may pull some antics in traffic and be kind of a jerk, but no one knows I'm a Christian, so no problem, right? This is why churches should not have bumper stickers. <laughs> 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 Just, you know, in case you're ever thinking about those. <laughs> but we're, I know we're going in like completely jumping all around what happens in this chapter. But, um, so, but I think, I think that, that accountability thing is like a major part of, so I guess if we're talking about like, why would you do um, why, why would you dress differently? One is um, the, the outreach component thing that I was saying, right? But then there's also, like Michael was just saying, like, there's an accountability to it. If you know that the way you are dressed represents your group, like you, or, and whether that represents your group as represents Quakers in particular, which granted lots of people don't realize we're alive anyway. So Christians in general or or maybe peace churches or whatever, but if, or in my area, uh, I could easily be mistaken for Jewish. Um, that has happened. There's a Orthodox Jewish woman who has twice mistaken me for, for Jewish. The second time this conversation went, she starts asking me questions. And she goes, did we have this conversation before? Hmm. <laughs> yes. But over in giant. Um, but, um, well, that accountability can be really helpful for like sort of keeping you on best behavior. 
Well, an interesting thing, and, and something the book talks about that I think is 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 new today, like in, in the 20th and 21st centuries, is that traditionally, uh, or in the old in the olden days, uh, you know, everyone in your meeting and everyone in your yearly meeting would dress pretty much the same way, and you would have been recognized as a member of the group. Whereas now, you dress your own personal style of plane, and so do maybe you know a dozen other members of your yearly meeting at, mm-hmm. ra- at seeming random, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't necessarily link you to any particular community. Right. That's And like how the the Mennonites and the brethren that I met couldn't tell that I was Quaker. They knew that I was clearly somewhere in their vein, but didn't know which group in particular. Whereas um, with many of these groups, you, like they, they all, they can, they can tell. It's, it's almost like right. they've got a dictionary of like, these three things mean this group, this means that group. Yeah. Like Bridget in, in Ohio yearly meeting, the head covering she wears, that means Lancaster Conference Amish. But she's a Quaker. Um, <laughs> and and Zaley up in Canada, the head covering she wears, that is Midwestern Amish. But she's a Quaker. Um, but then, like, both of them... Flying a false flag. But then, um, both of them, the dresses that they're wearing are Mennonite-style dresses. And so I've, I've talked to uh, whoever it is that... The, I've talked to the drunken Mennonite. Seriously, this is a blog and a, and a person on Twitter. It's, it refers to a specific person. Um, I've... I can't remember her name, though. Last name starts with a K, um, I think. I talked to her before about, like, coming up with, like, a website where it's, like, where you can try to narrow down which group, like, somebody's from based on what they're wearing. Like, if they're wearing a cape dress, then that's more likely to be Mennonite than Amish versus Amish tend to wear the three-piece dresses, right? And, like, which head, like, is the head covering pleated or is it gathered and is the brim tapered or straight and all that sort of thing. But that every page would basically need to have a a little like, or it could be a Quaker, because we kind of mix and match between the various things. Now, obviously, as Mike said, I'm wearing a button-up shirt and a black skirt, so like my shirt came from the thrift shop. Um, it happened to fit, you know it's my size, so I wear it. Um, but and and actually. Don't see very many doing separate shirt and skirt, but that's usually my answer when people ask if I'm Amish. Is that Amish don't wear separate shirts and skirts; they only wear dresses. But so anyway, the um, so do you th- do you do you think it would be good if all Quakers started dressing plain? Is this the part where we quote Margaret Fell? You can. <laughs> um, there's a there's a story from the early days of Quakerism <clears throat> where somebody was uh, getting upset about somebody wearing, you know, bright red. And Margaret Fell's answer was that everyone dressed exactly the same as a silly poor gospel. And now that's often used as a uh, way of saying that we shouldn't care about um, simplicity and plainness of dress at all. We shouldn't care about distinctiveness. But... um, I'm sure a lot of that is a reaction against that classical era of Quakerism that Micah talked about, where there was a greater degree of uniformity. There was not absolute uniformity. There was not, this is the one Quaker dress, but there were some pretty strong guidelines about, like, we know, laces in fashion. You're not going to wear it. Um, Drab colors. And that doesn't just mean gray, as people often think it does. You know, olive and other colors like that. There's a couple of Hicksite bonnets in one museum that are 
made of silk where it's yellow one direction, gray the other direction. So it kind of changes between like a yellow and green and gray color depending on the angle you're looking at it. <laughs> but um, sometimes drab means a purpley color. But So do you think it would be useful for, every, for all Quakers to dress plain? I haven't thought about it. <laughs> I suppose there's, there's, there's that outreachy thing. <laughs> I like outreach. What effect do you think it has for you to dress, for you to be like the one plain dressing member of your meeting? I'm not, though. Oh, you're not? How many are there? Three. Okay. At uh, least. Out of? Um, I, I'm not sure how many more members we have now, but we have weekly attendance of about 100. Okay. So um, 3%. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd say, like, in the D.C. area, the number of visibly plain friends... Um, and I'm not sure whether to count all of the men who wear suspenders as be as intentionally being visibly plain or as just being. I think old. if you're, I think, you're, I, 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 I think, I think if you're a guy, you gotta wear a hat. In, in order for for it to be like hat. for it to be like registered on the census. <laughs> um, I mean, in the DC area, there's uh, me and then my husband Daniel and his sister Amelie. Um, so like you and literally can like count these people on your yes, hands. Yes, yes. Michael over at Bethesda Friends, Scott at Friends Meeting of Washington, and Julie at Alexandria Friends. And so there's a half dozen of us in the D.C. area. And this really surprised the Friends in Ohio yearly meeting, actually, um, because they were telling me that there was a plain friend from Amsterdam, the only one, who was visiting D.C. And she was intending to visit Rock, uh, sorry, Marlboro meeting in Pennsylvania that Sunday until she learned just how far apart those places are on an American map, because the U.S. is much larger than Europeans realize. And so it turned out that actually driving two hours to get to meeting wasn't going to be on her agenda, thanks. And they said, well, maybe she'll go to your meeting. And they were thinking that my meeting would be the logical one, because they have me, so they'll be used to the plain thing. And I was like, you know, at first when they said maybe she'll go to your meeting, I was like, well, there's like nine meetings in the area. They're like, well, but yours is used to the plan thing, so she should go to yours, right? And I said, four of those nine have at least one person who dresses unusually. So what is this about? So the, I guess the, the old Quaker way of, of phrasing stuff would be to talk about the vain fashions of the world, right? That there are all these things in day-to-day life that you could be very interested in and spend a lot of time on that could be better spent on... Um, prayer, Bible study, um, doing things God generally wants you to do. And so rather than uh, spend time on things like fashion and um, having you know, the latest hairstyle or doing your makeup in whatever, you know, following the trends, mm-hmm. that you're stepping out of that and... Um, I think one of the other women in the area also said that was that was um, her motivation was that she is stepping intentionally stepping back from fashion and saying I'm not going to be part of that uh, that stream. I'm not going to try to keep up with that because that's not what's important. And so we each sort of settle on what our personal uniform is going to be, and then go, okay, now I'm not going to think about fashion anymore. I don't need to. What I'm going to wear is already covered. You know, I've got, like, six shirts and, like, two dresses, and that's what I wear every day. And 
you know, that, you know, do laundry once a week, right? So what am I going to wear? What's clean? So maybe that's why they uh, joked about Barack Obama being a Quaker, because he, like, wore the same suit every day. Did they? Yeah. Okay. I think it was on The Daily Show. Oh, okay. All the Quakers, did, I, knew, did, did, all the Quakers I knew were, like, passing it around as a meme. Oh. With, with Barack Obama, like, superimposed over the Quaker Oats man. <laughs> Alrighty. I know there's also some, some talk of um, Obama having been influenced by the fact that his daughters went to Sidwell Friends School, which is a Quaker school. Um, but so it sounds—it sounds like plain dress, like plain dressing individuals. It sounds sort of just, I won't say just, but it sounds—it sounds like sort of life, a lifestyle choice and a life hack in some ways. <laughs> sort of, I suppose. Um, I mean, the the way that the chapter introduces this is by saying that simplicity was considered a testimony to the basic importance of God's leading and our submission to Christ. Being a friend meant living by a specific set of spiritual and practical priorities. And it talks about how they didn't use the word spirituality, or sorry, they didn't use the words simplicity and plainness in the early days. They were just thinking of themselves as being obedient. And so it says, the scriptures commanded that the kingdom of God be a Christian's highest priority, which meant that one ought not spend time, money, or energy on unnecessary items or occasions. If the kingdom of God was one's highest priority, one would, as a consequence, look, speak, and live quite differently than one's neighbors. And so that also means that it's not supposed to be just a thing that um, you do for the heck of it. Like, it's it's supposed to be the result of having your focus changed to being, um, to, to being, you know, I'm so focused on what I'm supposed to be doing that I'm not going to bother with this other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this chapter also talks about plain speech as part of this as well, um, which I do not do the the plain speech. We do in our family, uh, but it's 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 not it's not really a religious thing at all. It's just it's just an intimate form of address, which I think is what it's become. Like you know, how you're meeting, many people use plain speech, but it's pretty much as an intimate form of address. Like, I, there may be one or two people, but I think almost no one uses it with, with, like, anyone in the world. Like, I think the widest range of it is, like, people, like, other Quakers. Yeah, that's what I've noticed, too. And I, I find that unusual. It, if the point of the, of the plain speech of calling people thee and thou is, you know, for the early friends was about leveling society downward to the point of talking to everybody as someone that they are intimate with, as opposed to regarding everybody as their spiritual betters, or sorry, their, well, their betters, period. Um, because, well, the idea was social stratification was extremely stark, right? Mm-hmm. And so some people were better than others legally and politically and socially. And so Quakers said, we're not about that, and just called everybody the informal former dress, which is leveling everyone downward. Right. Now, as we have all noticed in um, actual society, we have leveled what happens with the second person um, pronoun in our wider society, because everybody is you. Eventually, most Quakers gave up on leveling everybody downward and went, okay, leveled upward, whatever, good enough. Yeah, I mean, we've leveled downward, not just grammatically, but just in practice, like, the other day, I was helping my, my boss, you know, the, the guy who employs me, 
uh, load up his car with stuff from our office. And like, as we were leaving, I'm like, okay, man, see you next week. And like, that would be unthinkable 50 years ago mm-hmm. to call my boss man like that. Uh, but it was like totally informal address. Right. It's like we're, we're like we're, we as a society are currently like as, as in terms of like the way we talk to one another and address one another, we are like as low on formalities we can possibly get. Mm-hmm. And actually what you just said about like calling your boss man, like uh, not really mentioned in this chapter, but another part of plain speech for early friends and um, was to not call people by titles, right? Like 50 years ago, you'd have been, yes, Mr. Jenkins, except that you're a Quaker, so maybe you wouldn't have, and then there would have been a whole... I bet you Quakers still did, mostly. I don't know. I mean, for the early friends, they had a, they they, were, they had that thing about the not doing the titles, but I don't know in the intervening years how that went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually be curious about that to no. know. And this, this relates, I think, to plainness uh, is worth discussing. Um, yeah, so Quakers traditionally, we may have mentioned this on other podcasts, but Quakers traditionally, like, issued titles in general um, that, like, you know, to address someone formally was to call them first name, last name. That And, and you, you will actually still see this in, in, in the Quaker community some places where, like, when you, when you, when you want to, like, sort of, uh, if you want to be super formal, the most formal way you could address someone while still following Quaker convention is to say, friend Mackenzie Morgan, right? So mm-hmm. It's like, Friend, first name, last name. Although I have seen some friends object to using friend alone as a title. So it's one thing to say our friend, meaning somebody who's part of your meeting, right? But but you wouldn't just like start a sentence with friend so and so. Sure. But when I but because like, then it's turning into a title. But when I when I when I read documents from like say the early twentieth century, for example, when like friends were amazingly it's amazing actually to, to see how deeply uh, in tune with the with the changing culture, friends were in the early twentieth century. Like friends were deeply integrated, um, and like to the extent where like you know, uh, the the five years meeting which became Friends United meeting, like they they were regularly holding votes on everything, um, you know, like and they don't do that anymore, right? Like they are now back to like a sort of a, a sense of the meeting consensus, no voting kind of process. Y'all can't see my eyes being like saucers. <laughs> yeah, and it wouldn't surprise. I don't know if this is true. I'd have to look into it, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if FGC was the same way. It wouldn't. It would not shock me in the least if FGC Friends General Conference um, also was voting in the early 20th century. Um, but like Friends were deeply influenced by the surrounding culture in the early 20th century, and so I'm just curious. Actually, like it wouldn't surprise me at all if like Mister and Mrs. and 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 even even like Professor and or or, or, or Doctor. It wouldn't shock me at all if like those were common things like to be writing to one another in like official correspondence between Quaker agencies and stuff. Hmm. That wouldn't shock me at all. Um, so like, it is interesting to me, like, so because we are now in this, in this, in this era of intensely flattened rhetoric, mm-hmm. while at the same time being an era of, of intensely rising income inequality and social class distinctions, right? Mm-hmm. This weird situation where like, I can call my boss man, but you know, he, he may be making, I, I, you know, I don't know what my boss makes, probably nothing because we're a startup. So he's probably, he's probably foregoing a lot, a lot. Okay. Of so let's now. pretend that, so instead, how about me? Yeah. I work for the Washington post. Um, right. And that means, you know, you go far enough up, eventually you hit Jeff Bezos. Right. Right. And so, and so like McKenzie probably could call Jeff Bezos man. Like she could probably get away with it at this point um, because that's just where we're linguistically and, and culturally at. But like Jeff Bezos also like, makes more in a minute than McKinsey will make in her life. 
and controls the lives of millions of people. Um, so in that context, how should, how should we be using language? Um, and I've actually wondered, like, it, it's, su- it's, such a, it's such a mind flip for me being raised in a Quaker household where, like, we avoided titles. Like, my, my father do- has a doctorate in theology, and he has never, he has never, like, had He's never been Dr. Dorland? No, no. Like, like, occasionally someone has found out he has a doctorate and have called him doctor, but he has never, ever, ever encouraged people to, like, to use his title, right? And so, like, I was raised with that. But so it's been sort of a mind flip for me to think, like, we're actually, like, so we're in this, we're in this space of, like, extreme class stratification that's growing in this country and becoming really calcified. And yet we have this linguistic thing going on where we're like, it's all this like feigned casual. And I'm like, how should we be using language? Is there a case to be this more is certainly formal? easier to learn than like Japanese is like seven or something levels of formality. I don't even know how to conjugate Japanese if I was going to talk to somebody who worked for the Japanese government. Right. It's like you have to change, you have to pronounce your verbs completely differently. But I guess, <laughs> I, I guess I'm just wondering like, is there, might there be good reasons to be more formal? Like be formal with everyone. I don't know. Um, well, so not a class thing, but as a race thing, for instance, um, and this isn't really a right now thing, but somebody in my meeting uh, told me that when she was in college, the woman who um, like worked the front desk at her dormitory building was a black woman. Mm-hmm. And in that era, you know, she was in college in what, the 1950s, maybe? Um, in that era a white woman would have been Mrs. Smith and a black woman would have been Betty. Mm-hmm. And because that's how that, that was part of that social stratification of races in the U S was that black people did not get titles right. and also would be infantilized. Like you could have an 80 year old black man who was working and would be called boy. Mm-hmm. And so for her, what seemed appropriate to her was that she did call this woman who was working in, in the dormitory, you know, Mrs. Smith, um, because that woman had been deprived of that so much yeah. that, that leveling it out in her, as far as she was concerned, morally required that she add to that woman's pile, not simply stop adding to the other person's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So those, those are like some things I wonder about, which like, would not fit within, like, you know, Quaker, simple, the traditional Quaker plainness, mm-hmm. right? But I wonder, like, should I actually start, like, yeah, particularly in those cases, but just in general, like, should I be more formal? Like, is there, is, are there good things about social distance? Uh, and, but yeah, definitely in the case of, like, I think it probably would be a good practice to, like, especially, like, basically, like, the less power someone has in a situation, the more, the more honor you should provide them in the way mm-hmm. you speak to them um, would probably be a good, a good place to start. Yeah. And I've seen some conversations about, you know, you, you, you were part of this conversation about um, things like recording ministers and using the title reverend on, on pastors and other denominations um, because of the, inertia behind men being ministers and pastors that is found in every other denomination that women are usually uh, automatically assumed to be the pastor's wife and not the pastor herself. And so, you know, um, Ashley Wilcox has said she thinks it's very important that friends don't give up the practice of reporting ministers because when 
you know, when she goes to uh, anything, especially a medical, where there are pastors, you know, conference for pastors or whatever, things like that, she is automatically assumed not to be a minister herself Mm -hmm. because she's female. And so it's very important that we have some way that we continue to have recording so that we can balance so that she has the credential to show. Right. And it's terrible situation that she as a woman is going to have to show that credential when the male ministers are just going to be assumed to be telling the truth Mm -hmm. um, or assumed without them even saying it to start with. But you know, that, that, that's certainly a conversation that's happening right now is about women with titles like doctor and reverend and having those titles discounted. Right. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I, I really, I really am not cool with the whole reverend thing, but I, I, I get, I get, I get where that's coming from, uh, particularly with people who like traditionally have not been allowed in those, in, in, to, to have those positions. Um, it's an interesting thing for Quakers since women have always had pretty equal access right. to, to, to ministerial uh, credentials. Um, so it's just an interesting thing. Like we, we, we've always issued the titles and yet women and men have always been, I mean, I'm sure it's not perfect, but in most parts of Quakerism, uh, throughout most of our history, Quaker men and women have been relatively equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, so it's an interesting situation to come into other areas of the church where women have basically been like totally subordinated for, you know, 1900 years or something. And it's like, wow, like it's a little different. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, so with, you know, internally, um, the, the recording doesn't seem to matter as much, uh, for us, mm-hmm. but it's when we have to interact with, with Christians from other denominations that we need, you know, it seems like we need some way to, uh, get through their worldview. Yeah. I wonder about that too. I wonder about that too, though, because, uh, do we lose our witness when we pose as clergy? If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, Quakers have ministers. We don't have clergy, right? And well, we they, don't have lady one of the two. Well, one of the two, but, uh, I mean, I would, I would say more, we don't have clergy and clergy being uh, in my mind, clergy is like a special class of Christians has special magic powers. Um, <laughs> Right. Um, and like Quakers have ministers and Quakers have, you know, Quakers, different members of our churches have different spiritual gifts and we have different roles. But like there's no one who's like a special kind of Christian that's like has special powers. Um, and I think that's really valuable. And so like just something I wonder about is like because I, I'm actually I'm actually thinking I'm thinking about this a lot right now um, in terms of like what it means to be a Quaker pastor. Um, what like to what extent is it faithful to act like, you know, to put in Old Testament terms, to act like the rest of the nations and sort of blend in mm-hmm. as a clergyman as opposed to saying, like, no, like, we don't actually recognize a distinction between clergy and lady. We think these are made-up things. I've, I've seen, like, where there's, like, uh, petitions or open letters that ask for clergy and religious leaders yes. to sign. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so technically, could just any Quaker sign then if we don't have laity or could no Quaker sign because we don't have clergy, which way does this go? Right. Yeah. Um, I would say, I would say just on that particular question, I've always felt free to sign on to, I mean, since, since, and this is a little bit of a worldly standard here, but certainly since I went to seminary, (laughs) I I felt, I felt very fine uh, in signing on to documents that are asking for the signatures of religious leaders. 
because you know I've I've been a, I've been a religious leader among friends for a while now, and you know I didn't I didn't need like a, a piece of paper for that, but like I think you know I, I guess I would say like if you're if you're if you're like deep enough into into Quaker leadership like leadership in your in your in your church community where you where you feel where like you would even even ask the question am I am I a church leader you are like if that's a serious question for you you are <laughs> I mean there's certainly lots of churches have we'll talk about lay leaders right for for people who are not ordained <coughs> are um, yeah are leading small groups or leading Bible studies or right women's ministry or whatever they're doing. But I guess, like, just to sort of bring it back to plainness, um, I think it is plain to um, to embrace to to embrace the gift and embrace the ministry without needing to fancy it up with a bunch of a bunch of titles and 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 and, and sort of uh, religious bureaucracy around it. I, I would agree with that. I do still think we should continue to recording to record ministers because I think it's an important part of uh, nurturing the ministry. Is you have to admit that 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 gift exists there, which the hesitancy to record ministers I think comes from a hesitancy to acknowledge the gift to start with. I would I would just I would just say I agree, and I, and I would say that um, I think less important, more important than recording ministers, which I think is a fine practice to keep up. I think. More important than recording ministers is actively recognizing, actively recognizing and empowering leadership and allowing people to take leadership in Quaker communities, and not have everything devolve to, to committees, but actually let individuals take leadership and have a, have some measure of authority in the community. I think that's important, and if, if, if that's something that recording can help us do, I think that'd be great. You can find us on the web at quakerpodcast.org, as Quaker Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Patreon, and on iTunes.